Um, for those who don't know me, real quick, uh, Jim gave a little bit about my background. Uh, I'm originally from Massachusetts. Uh, went to college at the University of Maine, played nine years in the NFL, six years with the Jets, and three years with the Chiefs. Um, retired in 2016, and uh, now I'm, like Jim said, on my second Masters. I have a lot of free time, and so uh, that allows me to, to do these things. Um, and uh, I have an interesting topic for today. Uh, I'll start with a story. When I was uh, playing with the Jets in 2010, we were playing the Indianapolis Colts in the playoffs. And uh, it was one of those games, I believe it was the AFC Championship game, so the winner gets to go on to the Super Bowl, right? So as a, as a player, you're going to study like crazy for that game because it's your, it's your chance to get to the Super Bowl, the biggest game, the thing everybody starts the beginning of the season with, the beginning of the year with in mind. We're going to get that Super Bowl. Uh, and so I spent that week, I said, you know what, I'm going to go above and beyond my study because I really want to go play, play in this big game. And so I, I studied, I studied, and I'm watching Peyton Manning on film. And I'm watching everything he's doing. I'm trying to figure out, you know, he's the quarterback of the Colts at the time. I'm trying to figure out how he runs the offense. And one thing I saw was they, when they were running a short yardage play, when the Colts were running a short yardage play, so they only had a yard or two to go, he would get up to the line of scrimmage, and then he'd, he'd give a little head nod towards the direction he was about to go before the ball was snapped. And then they would snap the ball and go in that gap. And so I picked up on this little, this little tip, right? I hadn't seen it before. Nobody had seen it before. I said, okay, you know what, when I see that in the game, if I get in that situation, if I see his head go towards the gap he's planning on running in, I'm going to get out of my gap and go in that gap and tackle him. So fourth and one on the goal line, again, big game, get in the game, and I see it, right? He runs up, and I see him put his head in that gap, and I leave my gap. I get fired up in that A gap. I shoot off the ball, and it just opens wide up. I'll tell you, his defensive lineman, it's like part in the Red Sea. You just see Peyton Manning stand there, and I just baptize this dude right by his head. Boom. <laughs> And I'm doing the Ray Lewis, right? I'm yelling at the... And so that was what de that's what defense is, right? That's, a, that's at the top, right? We ended up losing the game, and I went home, and so I didn't get to go to the Super Bowl. But I got to do that to Peyton Manning, so that's a minor win. Um, but that's what, that's what I did. That's what I did in football. I played defense, right? I, I studied what the offense was going to do, and I tried to build or tried to learn, and, and we tried to build as a defense, defenses to neutralize what they were going to do. And so... There's actually a similar command in the Bible for us as Christians. Uh, the Bible tells us to be prepared to give a defense for the Christian faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The word here for de uh, defense in the Greek is the, is the Greek word apologia. And that's where we get the word apologetics from. And so that's where I got my first master's in apologetics. And so the idea of apologetics, it's a branch of theology that's designated to studying objections to the Christian faith and also putting forth arguments for the Christian faith. So there's an offensive ver version of apologetics and a defensive version. So in today's sermon, I want to do just that. I want to put forth a defensive version of apologetics for the Christian faith. Now, I will, uh, I'll start with this. This sermon's probably a little bit more heady than normal. Um, I'm going to try to keep it quick because I'm, I'm 300 pounds up here, okay? So this is not going to look good in about 15 minutes. So I'm going to try to move. Uh, but it is a little bit heady. Um, so if there is any questions or anything, you can, I'll, be, I'll stay around after to talk about that. Um, and I'm almost certain that it's going to make uh, some of you upset. I've been in those seats. I know how frustrating it is when the pastor's up there and he's saying things that you disagree with and there's nothing you could say. 
And not, not that Jim ever did that, but just <laughs> in general. Seriously, no, Jim never did that. Um, and so I, I'm going to, again, I'm going to try to fly through this, and I'm, I understand that. I'm taking that into account. So please don't feel like this is an attack or trying to catch you off guard. I'm, I'm just hoping to get us to think about these questions uh, because they're important. They're really important. They're the existential questions that I feel like are so vital for us to, to pay attention to. And as Christians, we're commanded, again, to give a defense for the faith. So let's go to the first, the first objection to Christianity that is, that is popular today, and it's that science has disproven God. I'm a, uh, I'm a big fan of science uh, for a lot of different reasons. Right? I like to set my coffee so I can wake up in the morning and have that machine make that coffee so I don't have to go over there and touch it, just go over, you know, it's ready for me in the morning. Uh, I like the TV. Um, there are some things I worship. I worship the iPads for my kids because those little crazy kids can be going nuts. You pull the iPads out and there's silence for hours. Okay, I'm that parent, all right? There's silence for hours. I worship God for science. Um, and so we've done so much in the past hundred years. We've made it to the moon. We've sent um, uh, spaceships or, uh, or uh, satellites out to Pluto and beyond. Um, we've harnessed quantum mechanics, right? We've harnessed the uh, elementary particles, electrons and neutrons, and used them so we can have TV and phone and uh, internet and all that stuff. Um, science has done such a great job of explaining the natural world to us, but what the problem is and what motivates this objection is people say, well, science has done such a great job explaining the natural world, therefore we don't need God, and that therefore God doesn't exist. I heard a philosopher make this analogy once. He said, he said this objection is, is like this. Let's say you have a metal detector. Let's say it's the greatest metal detector ever made, right? This thing can pick up metal from all over the place. They say, you scour the whole earth with this metal detector. And then when you get done, you say, you know what? I didn't discover any wood with this metal detector. Therefore, wood doesn't exist. That's what this claim is making. Science, by definition, is a study of the natural world. So to say science can, can weigh in on whether God exists or not is like saying a metal detector discovering wood. It's not designed, by definition, to discover the, to, to discover the supernatural. It can give us hints about possible things regarding supernatural, metaphysical, right, beyond the physical world, but it's not designed to tell us whether God exists or not. Uh, I, I wanna, and, and I wanted to read this, these statistics to you because I, I found this very interesting. So a 2013 study by Combs Res showed that um, in the UK, 77% believe that events in life cannot be explained by natural causes. 87% of the non-religious voters agreed with this. 16% said they experienced a miracle. Okay, this is in the UK, where religion is very, I mean, there, are, there really is, you know, if you're gonna talk about a country that's secular, you don't get any more secular than the UK. And you have almost 20%, so two out of every 10 people believes they've experienced a miracle. A 2013 Harris poll showed that 72% of America's, Americans believe that miracles occur. And so, if you were to do a, you know, based off these statistics, if you were to survey everybody in the world, whether they've seen a miracle or believe in miracles, you would get a ton of people who believe miracles occur. Now, some of, and, and have experienced miracles. Now, some of those miracles are almost certainly will be false and shown to be false. But all it takes is one. All it takes is one miracle to be substantially supported for this idea that the natural world is all there is to be thrown out. 
All it takes is one miracle. And so we have good reason to think that there's more than the natural world. And we have good reason to think that there's more than science can tell us. There's kind of an underlying claim here that the only way to, uh, let me, we should only believe things that are scientifically proven. That's kind of the underlying claim to this, is only believe things that are scientifically proven. I want to make two points here. First off, that sentence is not scientifically provable. So the sentence, we should only believe things that are scientifically provable, is a philosophical sentence. It is not a scientific sentence. And so right away, the, 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 the sentence is self-defeating. But the second thing is, there are a lot of things that we believe that science doesn't tell us. Let me give you a, a couple examples. First off, mathematics. This, this one surprised me, but, but it's true. Science presupposes, science assumes that math works in order to get going. But science can't prove math because to, for science to prove math, it would have to assume the truth of math and then it'd be reasoning in a circle. So science assumes the truth of mathematics. Science assumes metaphysical truths. Have you ever tried to prove that other minds exist outside of your own? There's no way to prove that. I see you all moving, right? I see everybody moving and talking, but I can't prove that other minds exist. I can't prove that the external world exists, right? We could all be a brain in a vat being controlled by a mad scientist. I mean, there's no way to prove that, yet we're rational in believing that that's not the case. How about proving that our cognitive faculties are reliable? That what I see and what I perceive is actually what's out there. There's no way to do that because in order to do that, you'd have to rely on your cognitive faculties to do it. And again, you'd be reasoning in a circle. Ethical beliefs. Science can't tell us what, science only tells us what is, not what ought to be. Right? Science can tell us how things go, right? But it can't tell us whether it's wrong or not to kill an innocent human being. It can tell us how the gun works. It can tell us what happens to the body when it dies. But it can't tell us if that's right or wrong. The second you take that step, you've moved into philosophy. And so there are a number of things that science can show us that we know to be true. So science is not exhaustive knowledge. There are many other ways to know about the world. Now, there is one, there's one caveat. There's a, there's a little bit of, of overlap, and this is where I'll start getting a little controversial, right? So evolution, the E word, this is where, this is where things get, get tense. This is where a lot of secular people will say, well, the Bible says that Earth was created in seven-day, 24-hour days, 6,000 years ago, and modern science shows us that evolution is true and that the Earth is billion years old, the universe is 14 billion years old, uh, and so we have a conflict. And, and I want to nip that in the bud right away because what I've come to learn through my studies is there are a number of different theological views on creation. Genesis 1 through 11, where we get the majority of our creation story from, is a very complicated text. There's some poetry, there's some history, there's some narrative, there's a lot going on in Genesis 1 through 11. And so throughout the history, this isn't just from Darwin on, throughout the history, you've had a number of different approaches to Genesis 1, 11, 1 through 11. Um, you have New Earth creationism, which is just like I said, uh, seven 24-hour day period 6,000 years ago. You have Old Earth creationism, which tries to, to find a gap in between the days or between creation uh, and the, cre the creation of things. Um, you have theistic evolution, which, ex which accepts the entire evolutionary paradigm. Um, so you have a, a, a whole list of views that are debated among Christians. And so my, my thing with this is just, this is an in-house debate. So whether or not evolution is true is one thing, uh, but the, the, our entire faith stands or falls on the resurrection. Jesus was who he says he was, is who he says he is. 
Did he die for our sins? Did he raise from the dead three days later? And you can hold to evolution and believe that Jesus raised from the dead. And so there is no conflict here. This is an in-house debate. I want to read you this quote and think about when this might be from. This is, as for these days, it is difficult, perhaps impossible, to think, let alone explain in words, what they mean. Talking about the Genesis days of creation. But at least we know that the Genesis day is different from any ordinary day which we are familiar with. So, that sounds like something that would come from a philosopher today. That was St. Augustine in the 4th century. Okay, so this, isn't, this is not something that's a knee-jerk reaction within the church to deal with Darwinism. This is something that theologians and philosophers have been debating forever. So again, the, the idea that evolution disproves God is totally false. There is a number of different debates and a number of different positions on an entire spectrum, and so that's an in-house debate. The entire faith stands or falls on Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to the second slide. Objection number two, there can't be just one true religion. So this is where I expect things to get a little hairy. Um, but we, we live in a culture today that is very much a have-it-your-way culture, right? It's a very individualistic. And so it's 21st century Western democracy. It's totally the Burger King, have it your way mentality. And so you have, um, everyone has their own styles, fashions, cars that they like, different things. And the entire system here, especially here in America, is set up to um, have uh, resources for whatever your personal you know, likes and dislikes are. Uh, the, there, there's one thing that, uh, comes to mind that always reminds me of this point is, is my grandmother. I love my Nana. She, she comes up here every couple months to help with the kids, and uh, uh, she's, she's the greatest, and she does so much to help us. Uh, but my Nana is very indecisive. And so we'll go out to, say we go out to dinner. We'll take her out to dinner to thank her for everything. And now again, I'm 300 pounds, so I'm thinking about the menu on the way to the restaurant. When that waiter comes over and says, what would you like to drink? I'm saying, I want a steak with uh, crab meat, you know, I'm on and the dessert is gonna be this and bring the check like I'm ready to rock. My grandmother is not that way. And so we'll be sitting there getting ready to eat and the, the waiter will come over and say, okay, well, what would you like? And you'll get this, hmm, hmm, hmm. Ah, and, and she's scanning, I'm like, Nana, we've been here for 20 minutes, you haven't picked, and she's scanning. And then she'll say, I'll have this. And then the waiter will say, okay, well, that comes with three sides. And I'm like, oh no. It's like, well, oh, mm, besides, should I get this? And then she'll say that, and she says, oh, and we have a special today on this, and would you like that? And she's like, mm, uh, and, uh, and I'm sitting there just like, God, I know you exist. Just let this end. Please let this end. Please, God, let her pick something. So I know we're, we're in this individualistic, this is how things work here. Now, here's the problem with this objection. Religion gets grouped into this kind of subjectivity. So you have two different categories of things, right? You have objective truths and subjective truths. So subjective truths are like my grandmother picking what she wants to eat, right? Subjective truths are like ice cream flavors or, um, you know, what kind of car you like. So the truth of that depends on what you like. Um, objective truths are like math and science. So two plus two equals four. There's, it doesn't matter who you are, if you like it or don't like it, two plus two is four. That's an objective truth. Religions purport to be objective. They make objective claims about reality. But the problem here is they get grouped into a subjective thing. So let's, let's take an example. Um, 
Atheism, which is a worldview, says that there is no God or gods that exist. Now you have, let's put on the other side, Hinduism, which many forms of Hinduism say there's 300 gods that exist. So you have these two poles. Now, we're going to die someday. We all agree with that. If one of those is true, then either nothing's going to happen or 300 gods are going to be there. But they can't both be true. You can't have nothing and 300 gods when you die. It's either one or the other. And now we'll bring it in a little bit closer. Let's take Christianity and Islam. Christianity, Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father but through me. Islam says there is one prophet, Muhammad, or there's one God, Allah, and his prophet is Muhammad. So there are two conflicting claims. These cannot be true at the same time in the same place. And so right off the bat, this idea that there can't be one true religion, you could go to the extreme and say all religions are false, which itself is a religion and therefore would be self-defeating. Or you have to try to figure out, best of your knowledge, what religion is true. But they, they, can't, they can't all be true. Philosophically, there's a problem, right? You, you can't have these, these contradicting things. Uh, morally, there's a problem. Because if all religions are true, then these religions that sacrifice children, uh, where rape is permissible, um, that do these awful things, why would their religion be false? You'd have to appeal to some objective standard, and where does that come from? And so you, you're dis, you, if you're going to say all religions are true, then you'd have to accept the full spectrum of religions. And then theologically, for, for us as Christians, it, it sounds good that all religions are true, but when you think about it theologically, what you're saying is that Jesus Christ came off the throne in heaven, entered into creation, suffered, died, went through all of that just for another way to get to heaven, right? Just, to, just for another way, but everything else is true. It just, it takes the cross and makes it somewhat vacuous. And so theologically, we have good reasons to think that that's not the case. And, and thinking about religion in this, in this way has really changed my mindset. So when I was in, in New York, I played four years with a good buddy of mine who was a Muslim. And we, we went out to dinner, we talked, we fellowshiped, all kinds of stuff. Not once did he ever tell me about Islam. Now, when I reflect on this, I think even if it's subliminally, he's... He's telling me to go to hell by not telling me about Islam. He thinks that my worldview is wrong and his is right. He thinks that I, if you're a Christian on Islam, you're in bad shape. And he didn't bring it up once. And so I was kind of like, man. Why? And then I was convicted of myself because of vice versa, right? It's like it motivated me to say, wow, I need to talk to him about Jesus. Like, why aren't we talking about this stuff? This stuff's so important. And so I understand it being in a, in a kind of Western society, why we would come to think this. But again, um, it's just, it's bankrupt on, on so many levels. Now, some will say, well, you're a product of where you were born, right? You were, you were born in a certain society at a certain time period. You grew up in a certain cultural milieu, and you, you came to these beliefs because of how you were brought up. And that's true, right? So if you were brought up in Pakistan, in the 21st century, you would probably be a Buddhist or a Hindu. Um, in the Middle East, you would probably be a Muslim. In America, uh, in the 21st century, you might be Christian, you might be a pluralist, you might be atheist. Um, a, a lot of it depends on how you were brought up. If you were brought up in the second century, you would think that the earth was flat. Now, just because you grew up in that time period and you had that belief, doesn't mean that that belief was true. Right? So we have to recognize the fact that our beliefs are shaped by 
how we are brought up, how we come to believe these things. But that doesn't, we can't stop there. We have to try to get over that hump and evaluate religion uh, on its own merits. And so it doesn't mean it's not difficult, uh, but it doesn't mean because we were brought up in a certain culture that we should stay there. Timmy Keller has this interesting quote, a pastor in, uh, in New York. He says, people in other centuries and other cultures don't have the same intuition that everyone deserves an equal chance. Just because everyone you know feels a certain way and your culture feels a certain way doesn't mean you can come to the Bible and say with Western individualistic people uh, who don't like biblical revelation, it can't be true. People in the Middle East are not nearly as bothered with this idea that some religions are right and some religions are wrong. That is not their problem with Christianity at all. So in, in the Middle East, they, this idea that only one religion can be true is not controversial at all. They get it. Their, their biggest objection to Christianity is how God could be all loving and how he could enter into uh, creation. They think that that's degrading God. Um, but that they have no problem with this. So this is really something that's, again, within our culture that we need to try to transcend, get over, and evaluate religions, again, on their own merits. Anybody fired up yet? Okay, let's go to the next one. It is wrong to force your morality on others. There I am about to force my morality on Manning. Um, this one's def this one, this is always a fight at the, t at the dinner table or on Facebook, isn't it? Uh, I remember when I first got saved, I got saved up here, small, small church in northern Maine, and old school Pentecostal church, right? So old school rules, old school religion, not, I mean, I love them, but it was very much religion, right? And so the women didn't cut their hair, they didn't wear makeup, they wore skirts, the men wore slacks, um, there was no drinking, there was no piercings, no tattoos, none of that. Uh, and so I get saved, you know, this is my, my last year in college, and I come home to see my family, and I'm fired up, and I'm zealous, and we sit down at the dinner table, and I say, hey guys, listen, I, I went to church, and I found Jesus, and I, this is so important, and they're like, oh, that's great, that's fantastic. Now, my family wasn't saved, um, and I said, listen, you all are going to hell, but don't worry, I figured it out, I got the plan, here's what we got to do, mom, you can't wear any makeup, don't cut your hair, you got to take the jeans off, just put the jean skirt on. Okay, Johnny, don't do my brother, don't be drinking. We gotta get the beer out of here. But listen, we're good. We ain't gonna go to hell, but we gotta we gotta implement these rules. Now, obviously that's wrong, right? That's that's uncorrect. I was just but this idea of forcing your morality onto others uh, can can really cause a stir. Because I remember my family was like, Are you crazy? What are you nuts? Do you remember yourself in high school? Um <laughs> But the idea, the problem is the same problem with the last objection. It's that morality gets lumped into this subjective field where we're saying what's good for me is good for me and what's good for you is good for you. So two things right away. It is wrong to force your morality on others. That's a moral claim. So again, it's self-defeating because it's forcing your morality on others to say it's wrong to force your morality onto others. So right away, it cuts itself off uh, uh, at its feet. But the other thing is, if morality is subjective, again, if morality is like ice cream flavors, then there's really no grounds to stand to object when somebody does something wrong. If you say what's good for me is good for me, and what's good with moral for me and moral for me, and what's moral for you is moral for you, I can just come take your wallet. Well, obviously you're not gonna like that, but I say, well, listen, this is my morality. I think it's okay to steal wallets, right? 
And so when you look at morality in this light, this subjective light, you lose the ground to, to object. Now, there are things, that, all these, all worldviews come with a set of moral beliefs, right? We all have, all worldviews have a set of moral imperatives. We all live by a set of morality. Whether you believe in God, don't believe in God, you all, we all have morals. And we all think they're correct. Now, when you come to Christianity, you might say, well, I don't like certain morals. Right? I don't like X, Y, and Z. I don't like these things. Uh, I might have told this story last time, but my, my sophomore year in college, I went to Cancun with some of my buddies. And uh, we were flying back from Cancun, uh, doing the college thing, and everybody was asleep, flying back, back into Boston. My, I had one buddy who was afraid to fly, petrified to fly. And he started to have a panic attack. And he started yelling, the plane is going down. And now the plane was landing, and we're going, we're going in turbulence, and so it, it kind of looked sketchy. And I woke up to my buddy yelling, the plane is going down. So I had no context, right? So instantly, my heart is slamming on my chest. Until that day, I, I, I still am terrified to fly because of that. I hate my friend for it, because I've had to fly so much. But you know what I hated at that point in time? Gravity. I hated gravity, because I thought, the engines are done, this plane's going down, and gravity just became my worst nightmare. Now, my hatred of gravity doesn't mean gravity is not true, right? So there might be things that you like or dislike, but it doesn't make them false. And so again, we're back to the same thing. We have to kind of try to evaluate these things on their own merits. And similar to the last point, if morality is objective, meaning it's, if it stands outside of space and time, so as cultures evolve, as societies evolve, as societies change, if there is a standard of morality, then we should expect at different times to be closer or further away in different areas from that morality. Because cultures change, society changes. The problem is when society says morality, it's subjective. And so if the Nazis take over and they win, then Nazi morality becomes status quo, right? Because morality is subjective. So we have to realize, okay, there could be things we disagree with. There could be things that we need to think about more, pray about more. Why, God, is this a moral imperative? Um, but we can't say, well, I don't like this. So it's not morality for me. Um, you might feel that way, but I don't feel that way. And we just leave it at that. Because again, it's, it's rationally bankrupt. I know we're probably fired up. So uh, if you, I want to give out my email. It's jimfunari at journey. If you have any objections. All right, let's, let's wrap this up because it it's hot. Uh, last objection. Why would God allow so much evil and suffering? Now, the last three objections, a little bit with the first one, philosophers will deal with that. The second two, across the spectrum, philosophers, theologians, you know, atheists, agnostic, believers, um, th those ones have pretty much been relegated to the back of the, the uh, thought cabinet because they, they've, they've just been handled. Um, this one has been dealt with since the beginning of time. And it is still dealt with by philosophers and theologians across the board. This is one of the most powerful objections to the existence of God. Why, when we look out into the world, if an omnipotent, all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing God exists, why do we see so much evil and suffering in the world? Now, before I start on this, I, I want to draw this distinction. So there's the emotional problem of evil. And there's the philosophical problem of evil. So today I want to talk about the philosophical issues with the problem of evil. The emotional problem of evil, somebody suffering, going through suffering, going through pain, 
uh, this is not directed at you. I think when you're, when you're dealing with evil and suffering, the best way is to listen, to pray, to suffer alongside people. Um, this, is, this is not directed at you. This is strictly as an objection philosophically to belief in God. So again, philosophers have debated and they've come to a, you know, a number of different ways to counter this objection. So some will say, well, people have free will. They have free choices and so they're allowed to make their choices and God can't intervene. Some say, okay, no, it's, it's a soul-making thing, that this is important because it turns us into who we are. Turns, makes us, you know, the, the suffering builds character. I know we can all look back on the suffering in our lives and say, oh yeah, okay, you know, the, I grew from that. Uh, I got better from that. I learned from that. Most of us. The best answer today to neutralize this objection, the most popular one right now, is just to say we don't know. Literally, we do not know why God allows so much evil and suffering. But just because we don't know, just because we don't have a reason, doesn't mean there isn't one. Just because we don't know, just because we don't have a reason for why God allows evil and suffering, doesn't mean there can't be one. This is, what's, this is a big fancy term called limited epistemic position. Epistemology just means knowledge. We're in a limited position of knowledge compared to an infinite God. Right, so an infinite God sees all time, space, matter, sees the entire plan laid out, um, and knows infinitely more than our little minds could ever comprehend. That doesn't make it easier, um, but it neutralizes the objection because there's no logical contradiction to the idea that God exists, a perfect being, and evil and suffering exists. We just don't know why the two could exist at the same time. Alvin Planning, a theologian, gives this great analogy. He says, say you open up to the door to your garage and you close it real quick. And he said, then say I come up to you and ask, is there a tank in your garage? You would know reasonably, depending on how big your garage is, I guess, if it's like my three-car garage, I would know if I opened the door quickly and shut it if there was a tank in my garage. Now let's say I open the door quickly and shut it, and someone comes up and asks, are there any no in your garage? no are those little bugs that you can't see. Now, obviously, I'm not even in any position to say whether there are no CMs in my garage or not. I, I just, I didn't have the ability to get that information. I'm not, not in a position to make that call. And so in the same way, we're in that type of epistemic position to say um, why, we just don't know. We don't know why. Uh, one analogy, I like, to, like think about taking your animals to the vet, right? I mean, it, I've taken my dog to the vet a number of times. I know I've used this story before. I can't explain to my dog why he's about to get poked and prodded and be in this place where all these other dogs are screaming and yelling. It, sounds, it must be like hell for him. I can't explain that to him, but obviously he needs to do it if he's going to live, if he's going to get his tick stuff, his rabies stuff, all that stuff is so important. There's no way for me to convey that to him. And so again, how much the difference between my cognitive abilities and my dogs compared to my cognitive abilities and an infinite God, right? So there are two points I want to make to close out with. First, it's hard to make sense of evil without God. Evil, if evil is a real thing, if evil really exists, then good must exist, right? Because you would need to have the antithesis, the opposite of evil, you would need good. Now, if evil and good exist, you would need a moral law to determine what is good and what is evil. And if a moral law exists, you need a moral law giver, right? So in order... For evil and good to exist, you need a moral law. If you need a moral law, you need a moral law giver, and so you're right back to God. Without God, if God does not exist, 
then there really is no evil. These are all subjective experiences that have been put on us through a process of natural selection and evolution over the course of, you know, five billion years or whatever. And here we are. And so we have these feelings, but there's no real evil. That's just how our body reacts to stimuli in the external environment. C.S. Lewis, uh, th this, was, this idea was what converted C.S. Lewis from atheism to Christianity. C.S. Lewis, the great theologian and philosopher. And this is his testimony of it. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be a part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? Of course, I could have given up my uh, idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. So I think what, what Lewis is saying here is on atheism, there is no grounds for this objection because evil doesn't really exist. There is, it's very difficult to make sense of evil if there is no God. Theism, you have, a you have justice. We have an idea of what right and wrong is, of what good and bad is. And so now you have, a, you have grounds to object. Secondly, and this is the point I'll finish with, this is the most important point. On Christianity, we know, we might not know why God allows evil, but we know what it can't be. It can't believe, it can't be because he's indifferent, not on the Christian message. The Christian message is that not that God stood by idly and let all the stuff go on, it's that he entered into the story. The only religion where God enters the story and suffers alongside of us and dies for our death to pay for our sins and is resurrected again. It's the only religion that has the author entering the story. There's been cognitive evolutionary psychology done on, on animals. And what they found out is with animals, they, they only have this kind of first order suffering. You know, and you go up the line, there are some animals who have no, kind of, no sentience, no idea what's going on. And so ants and stuff probably don't suffer, right? Then you get up the, up the hierarchy to dogs, cats, um, and, and even up to higher primates like um, uh, say monkeys or dolphins. And evolutionary ecologists will say, there, there's suffering here, but it's first order suffering. The suffering of these animals um, is not, that they can't reflect on it like humans can. But when you get to our level of cognition, you have what's called second order suffering, where it's you suffer and you realize that you're suffering. Animals, they, they believe, do not have this. They just have stimuli, I'm in pain. And so you work up this hierarchy, think about when you get past us to an infinite God. What's, what is suffering like for an infinite God? It is an infinite level of suffering, what he went through for us. And so again, the Christian message is, we don't know why God allows evil and suffering, but it can't be because he's indifferent. The suffering that Jesus went through on the cross is far beyond any of our suffering because he's so much greater than we are. This doesn't tell us what the reason is for the problem of evil. What it does tell us is what the reason is not. It cannot be that God doesn't care. The gospel keeps off the idea of indifference. And so the answer to suffering is, is what God has done for us. All right, so now that everybody is 
rocking and rolling. I will pray us out, and I'll sneak out the back. Thank you all for listening today. Again, I hope you got something out of this. Seriousness, this, this, these issues are incredibly important. I didn't, I didn't address this stuff exhaustively. I understand there are counterpoints and, and different points of view and places that I could be wrong. But my, my prompting is twofold. One, to recognize that it's a theological imperative for us to engage in this kind of discourse, this kind of talking about these important issues. Uh, um, and then two, uh, is the fact that, um, again, we, we can't be indifferent to it. So, Jesus, thank you so much for this time together. I pray this wasn't just information, but transformation, Lord. Uh, let us go into this world wherever we're at, and most importantly, um, as we go, grow closer to you. Uh, I pray for traveling mercies for everybody going home, uh, and I pray, Lord, you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.